Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to this episode of A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at the U.S. Army War College. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history in the Department of National Security and Strategy here at the U.S. Army War College. Happy to welcome you to today's discussion. We live in a world where the media is plentiful, and yet discussions about what the media is supposed to do and how it relates to politics are as controversial as ever. So we have with us as our guest today, postdoctoral fellow here at the U.S. Army War College, Dr. Amanda Cronkite, to talk to us about media and politics. Welcome, Dr. Cronkite. Happy to be here. Thank you. Glad to have you. So to start right with the biggest question of all is people often complain about bias, in the media, though most complaints about bias draw on anecdotal reports and are themselves often inspired by the political views of the listener. Are there objective studies on the lack of objectivity in media? Yes, actually, both in the United States and in Europe, there's quite a bit of evidence that if you limit the discussion to that which is actually news or journalistic reporting, there's usually very little bias. But in my experience, what a lot of people do is confuse news and opinion, particularly in the current media age. Um, With newspapers and broadcast television, there was always a very clear marking of who was a writer, who was a commentator. Now, cables has to go 24-7. You have to fill that space. So you have how many people, after they run for president, lose and become a pundit. Currently, cable TV even draws a distinction between anchor and host. Anchor signifying a journalist, host signifying that the network is not saying that person's journalist. But that's a very, very fine-grained distinction that I don't think a lot of people pay attention to. I mean, it's difficult when, when all the networks have the word news in their title. Is how are you supposed to know when the program you've, turned, you've tuned into is news or something else? Well, sometimes they'll give you indications such as, the, you know, is this person the anchor? Lester Holt is the anchor of NBC News. It, sometimes they'll also, they'll say, for example, on MSNBC right now, they have Claire McCaskill as a analyst. They'll sometimes, she's a former Democratic senator. They used to say former Democratic senator and MSNBC analyst. And I noticed l- last week that they just said former senator. Mm-hmm. So sometimes there's been some slippage in how these categories and how networks and entities delineate who's who. There's also ways you can tell by for language. So if it's the language of fact, who, what, when, where, why, how, versus if it's more emotional, hyperbolic language, you're probably getting away from news and more into opinion or persuasion. On a, on a very practical level, is there a difference between uh, an expert who's brought in for a particular show and somebody who's actually on the payroll of the networks? And how well do networks make that distinction? Well, we can't really know because in this country we don't tend to publicize salaries. People who are on retainer, for example, airline experts, they know they're not going to get a call unless there's a problem with the airline. They're probably being paid for their services, but they're on retainer, same as a lawyer would be. They're a subject matter expert. Versus someone who you see two or three days a week just giving their opinion on a variety of topics, they're probably employed as a commentator more Mm full-time. 
And they're probably giving more of their opinion as opposed to someone who talks about trains or talks about ele- electrical engineering. They're probably sticking to fact. Interesting. What do people generally mean when they complain or, well, not when they complain about bias, but we'll flip it around to make it more positive. What do people generally mean when they say they want more objectivity in their media? Well, what they think they mean Mm -hmm. is that they want unbiased reporting. Mm -hmm. What the research would show that they actually mean is that they want to hear what they want to hear. Mm -hmm. So the concept in the the literature is called selective exposure, and it becomes a bit of a chicken and egg issue. We listen to what we agree with, and the more we agree with it, the more we listen to it. So you end up with a very segmented media audience. Actual objectivity, or let's call it apartisan, nonpartisan reporting, does not do well when you actually give it to people. So this goes back to the 80s with the expansion of cable TV. Since people no longer at 6.30 had to watch one of the news networks, they just chose to watch anything else. And there's a lot of research that shows if you hate some TV show, you really hate it, you were probably more likely to watch that at 6.30, even if it's a rerun of a show you hate, than to actually watch not a partisan, nonpartisan news. Because we as human beings, we emote before we think. We like emotion and emotionally charged language and things we respond to more than we actually like what makes us think. So we, so we prefer to be irritated? We prefer to feel as opposed to have to think. Interesting. And there's a lot of research, for example, experiments done, and this has been done across cultures, where if it's the same news, if depending on your particular pre-existing thoughts and biases, you will react differently to the same exact sentence depending on who I tell you the sources. So this, this experiment's been done a lot, particularly in the U.S. with Fox News and MSNBC, mm-hmm. where it actually isn't the reporting at all that matters. It's people react to the source cue. One can hear a lot of folks talk about how this is especially bad because of the age of cable news or especially bad because of the age of the Internet. But uh, to put on your historian of media hat for a minute, right. how is this era any different from previous eras when we talk about the partisanship or lack thereof in the media? Through most of the country's history, news was extremely partisan. The idea of objectivity or more of a centrist news came out of the penny press. Objectivity as a concept is less than 100 years old, and it really only held in the U.S. from maybe the 50s to the 90s. People don't pay for nonpartisan news. They had to when it was one newspaper per city and three broadcast networks. But now what we've seen is a return to more partisan news and actually companies making money off of that. Mm -hmm. So last year, Fox News launched an app, a subscription app, I think it's $5.99 a month, for something called Fox Nation, which they actually marketed as all opinion all the time. And they they can charge people for it because they know that's what their audience wants to hear. And it's very easy for those of us who, I mean, none of us probably remember before objectivity, but objectivity is much more the anomaly. It's the exception, not the rule. Well, this will help us to move into some questions about economics, but to relate to that as well, it sounds like you're describing the era of objectivity as the era of broadcast television's dominance. So quote unquote, free TV. If it's all paid for by commercials, uh, but there's only three channels, uh, there was a limit to who was going to get on TV. And if that's our anomaly, 
should we just assume that you know, we're not going back because we're not going back to three free TV stations paid for by advertising aimed at the lowest common denominator? Well, it started a little bit before that, but it started very much with newspapers from the same thing. The concept, the people weren't didn't think they were paying for news because advertisers were paying for most of it with newspapers and then with broadcast. And with cable TV, you see they had cable subscriptions, royalties, but they were very minimal. Now, in terms of whether or not we're going back to it, since it was such an anomaly, both historically in the U.S. and globally, I don't think it's that we're we're not going to see it again. I think that the economics of how you make news in the U.S., this is a market system. It's not like the U.K. with BBC One, where you know that there's always going to be a BBC One. So in an age of cord cutting, more apps like Fox Nation may be what we see as a as opposed to more general or centrist media. Mm-hmm. Well, and and we get back to that point of who's paying for it and, and are they willing to pay? Uh, what do the numbers tell us about what, what people are willing to pay and, and who's doing the paying for media these days? The last numbers I saw were from the Pew Research Center. They Every year they put out something called the State of the Media Report. And I believe in 2018... Less than a third of people overall paid for any kind of news. Any at all. Any at all. The people who pay for news still these days, older Americans, because they are more likely to keep half, still have a newspaper subscription, to still have broadcast TV. The more educated, because they're more likely to pay for things like the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times. And that really creates uh, the haves and the have-nots. The Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times do fabulous reporting because they have very high paywalls. And so if I'm paying $400 a year for subscription, I want good reporting. But that means that the people who have access to that have access to wildly different information about the world than people who don't. Mm -hmm. Also, the way social media gets paid for is page clicks and shares. So what gets shared is more likely to be fluff pieces Mm -hmm. than hard news. And it's much more likely to be partisan without it being obvious that it's partisan. If my friend shares it, mm-hmm. I'm probably more likely to believe the source and I'm not going to dig in and see what the source was, mm-hmm. which is how you see a lot of very fringe media on both sides making it into mainstream discussions when that would not have happened before. And so the role of, of aggregating sites mm-hmm. and uh, there are people who think, well, uh, lots of people, different levels of, of education, wake up in the morning, they open Twitter to see what's in the news. And uh, what is your understanding and what is the current sort of scholarly understanding of the role that the algorithms of programs like Twitter or Facebook, which Facebook to use the example of a, co- of a company that is probably uh, many Americans' main source of news and yet dis- disowns any responsibility as an editor and claims to merely be a platform. How do, what do those algorithms do to shape our understanding of the news? So it was interesting. I just saw something today, again from Pew, 81% of the population in the U.S. uses Facebook. 72% say they get at least some news from it. So what happens then is the algorithms for Facebook, if you think about it, you don't want to hear what the person who always posts shows, at least in my case, my cousin who never posts a picture or my friend from college who never posts a picture, that's what I want to see. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm also least likely to see. Mm-hmm. Facebook, for example, got rid of something in its interface that used to let you see just new posts from people. 
they got rid of that. So you, whatever you interact with the most, you're, you're more likely to see. So if you always interact with people posting things from Pinterest, you're going to see more and more of that. The inverse is also true. If you never show any interest in economics or foreign policy or travel, you're not going to see that. So the term in the literature is, is selection bias. The bias that there probably is in the news that is very hard for us to quantify is what stories get shown and what don't. Mm -hmm. Because I can't tell you if it was a partisan decision or if it's because what the audi you know, focus groups say the audience wants, or even in some cases, if it was just what fit in the time, time or space allotted. Mm -hmm. So even if people try to, they think they're watching the news critically, you don't know what you're not seeing. A colleague said last week to me that she had a student who said he only watched Fox News, but he watched it critically. Mm -hmm. And she had pushed back to him because the stories Fox News chooses are actually systematically different than the stories MSNBC and CNN choose. We're, it's getting easier to study that with better, um, stronger, faster computers, but it's still really hard for me to say if that's partisan or a market decision. Well, and, and one wonders if it's ever possible to tell the difference, <laughs> right? Because if, if your primary interest, everybody's got to make money and stay on the air. Um, and so I, I'm thinking about this. When, when we criticize, or when we as viewers, we as readers, we as listeners of A Better Peace, uh, criticize the media for the choices the media makes, mm -hmm. for, the, for you know, whichever your political persuasion is, if the response is, hey, man, we're just picking the stories that we know are going to get your attention. If you want to eat your vegetables, you've got to demand more asparagus. Um, how, do we, how, how do media consumers play a role in shaping this market? Well, it's interesting because we use the term media diet a lot, mm -hmm. and your analogy to asparagus is very true. Even though I, I happen to like asparagus. I so do I, <laughs> but I don't necessarily like it as much as I like a Snickers bar, particularly Truth. if I'm in a hurry and I'm stressed out. Right. So if I'm stressed out by the news, do I really want to engage with something that's going to make it force me to think? Again, we as human beings, we don't like discordant information. It's really hard for us to accept that. Mm -hmm. But this has been shown over and over again in across a number of fields. Um, social psychology has probably done the most work on this. That I want to hear something that's pleasant. And in that way, if you don't want to hear bad news, well, what makes news? If, if the government's working, I as a taxpayer don't need to hear that. I want to hear if someone at the state, you know, someone, one of my state legislators is stealing money. If things are working as they're supposed to, great. I can just pay attention to my own life. News is not meant to show when things work. The idea of the fourth estate was who watches the watchers. If the citizens in a representative democracy say, okay, go ahead and do with my tax money what you will, I trust you until the next election. Well, if, if things are working and they get to pay attention to their own lives, somebody still has to pay attention to who's making the rules. And what, what worries me as a scholar of media and politics is that the biggest number of declines, we, the biggest decline we've seen in journalists is at the statehouse level. Mm -hmm. it, it's really easy to talk about national news, but most news that affects your daily life isn't national, it's local. So if people aren't paying for local TV and aren't paying for local newspapers, well, then you don't have somebody at the statehouse actually seeing who's not showing up for work, who doing those freedom of, 
freedom of information request to see how money's being used. That's where I think most of us think journalism really matters. And it's unfortunately where it's right now constrained the most and having to tighten its belt even farther. Interesting. And of course, we, as we also know that local television is also under a great deal of pressure. And there's, there is a reason, apparently, I've been told why it seems that a 22-minute newscast is 21 and a half minutes of the weather. Uh, and, and that and that's also a combination of what sells and what they think people want to see. Well, there's unfortunately that's pretty true. People turn in people are people trust local news more than they trust national news. But what they want from local news is weather, traffic, and local sports. Mm-hmm. Now, interspersed in there, you occasionally do get consumer uh, consumer product watches, things like that. And you'll get something that's about the state legislature. But most actual news content, even in 2019, is still produced by newspapers. Mm -hmm. Local TV, cable TV, even national news, they tend to source from local newspapers. Mm -hmm. So as long as local newspapers survive, the rest of, let's say, the news food chain would. But people aren't subscribing anymore. Right. And, and local newspapers, have they've been consolidated and then stripped and all of the things that go with that. Yeah. And actually, on that point, the one confirmed media bias scholars have been able to show is corporate bias. Ah. So as, as there are fewer and fewer organizations owning news, you see less coverage of corporate malfeasance, less coverage of environmental issues, less coverage of corporations doing badly. There are alternative models. People, there occasionally folks come forward. The, the, the alternative model for media is some kind of nonprofit will raise money, will treat it like a charity, treat it like a school. Um, are any of those models actually having an impact on the current media landscape? The ones I'm familiar with have largely been successful because they've decided not to consider the economic part. Mm. So to use an example, when Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post, he bought it knowing he was going to operate it as a loss. In a lot of places, news is not considered a market commodity, but rather a public good and therefore regulated much like you would electricity or water. The U.S. doesn't have that history in countries where they do, for example, Germany, parts of Scandinavia, mm. the citizenry is largely better informed about politics, tends to be less partisan. As long as the U.S. wants to be, have a market media economy, the odds of nonpartisan news hitting the mainstream are less and less. Because you can have a free press, but the press isn't free in yes. the sense that it costs money to create whatever it is you're creating. Yeah. And the most important journalism costs the most. Mm-hmm. So... When Spotlight won the best picture a few years ago, I had always been using that example to, you know, how long it took the Boston Globe to find out the story about Catholic sex abuse by priests. Well, Spotlight showed it. It showed having a dedicated team of five or six reporters. And just think of just salaries, office equipment, Mm -hmm. six people, six full-time people working six months to get a story that was incredibly important. But that's a lot of man hours, and not and and even a even a newspaper with as much tradition and and relatively wealthy as the Boston Globe had to justify that. Yes, and wasn't and I don't know. Do they still run the Spotlight? Uh, they actually program? do still run the Spotlight mm-hmm. program, but and uh, Washington the Washington Post has expanded their investigative team. But th- again, these are large entities. 
This is not somebody in Denver or, well, the Flint, Michigan story came Mm -hmm. out of the Detroit Free Press. Mm -hmm. Again, I think we would all agree a very important story, but only possible because there was a reporter there able to do it. So I think you've already at least indirectly answered this question, but I want to ask it again because it might be on the minds of people who are listening. If we're supposed to be happy about the breakdown of powerful gatekeepers, that now every person can be an investigative journalist, right? Every person can have their own newspaper, their own web, their own web, uh, web page that looks as good as any other web page if they can do it. What do we do with the reality that this glorious cacophony that's been created means that important songs are being drowned out? Well, I think the, what we all have to do is, again, to go back to the diet analogy. Yeah, it's really easy to eat junk food every day and it tastes really good. Sometimes it tastes really, really good. But over the long term, it's probably not good for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's the entire con- the entire idea behind the documentary Supersize Me. True. There's a reason why we call it junk food. <laughs> <laughs> so if someone knows that, that's fine. I worry about the people who don't know that. So who don't recognize that they're seeing opinion instead of news. Who don't recognize that they're only seeing a small portion of the stories out there. They don't know what they don't know, and they might not know to, to ask it. And in that way, I think that those of us who have the information, we have to try to get it out there. I understand it can fall on deaf ears. Mm-hmm. I had someone complain to me a few weeks ago that he thought CNBC was biased. And I said, well, CNBC covers more econ, but for the most part, they're, they're a financial network. Like, I don't think of political bias in a financial network. But the association of NBC, mm. in his mind, mm-hmm. meant it was mm-hmm. a liberal network. I don't know how to get at that. Mm-hmm. I mean, so much of what we're concerned about really is misinformation and disinformation. Mm-hmm. In that way, lateral reading has been shown to work. So if you read a story and it sounds just too good to be true, either good or bad, open up another window with this and look for the same topic from a different outlet. I'm also a big fan of the about section on any web page. Oh. So they can tell you that usually they'll tell you what they are. So if you know, you will have, you know, any entity saying we are X, Y, and Z. Sometimes they're pretty well hidden, but often people will tell you, you know, we are a Christian or we are a pro choice outlet. Mm-hmm. And it's right there. So at least, even if you still use that outlet, you can see kind of where their perspective is. Um, um, a quote I like to use in class a lot is uh, uh, allegedly attributed to E.B. White at a, a school board meeting, apparently in his little town in uh, the Hudson Valley, where they were talking about buying books for the school library. And somebody said they wanted a book that was, uh, that was objective uh, or unbiased. And his response was, you shouldn't seek a balanced book. You should seek a balanced library. So, you know, it's okay to know that one source is going to lean in one direction as long as you know it. Yes. And I guess, how do we, because, but, but the, the, the junk food analogy is really good here because, you know, people can think they're eating their asparagus when they read complicated stories on familiar media. So, you know, somebody picked up, a, you know, they, I need to know more about the world. So I'll, I'll read this story about German politics, even though it's really from the exact same source that I get all my other stuff from is how do we how do we get to the point where people feel both comfortable, but also feel as though there is a, an advantage to them for reading laterally, for reaching for, to, to actually taking the time to read other sources? Well, honestly, again, if 
we as human beings are cognitive misers, to use the term that I was taught in grad school, very technical, I know, then expecting people to do that doesn't make sense. What we can do is put out there what is objective and what might be more partisan or more opinion. There's a media bias chart that floats around on the internet. It's actually very well done, in my opinion. It it reports a methodology. So much like the Pew Research Center or Gallup, any one thing they do might be off, but the fact that they're telling you this is the methodology for how I collected it should make you trust it more, and it should be more replicable over time. Time Magazine, you know, it doesn't report breaking news. That's not their role. Their role, much like The Economist, is to give you more, more context. Well, in giving you that context, it might seem tinted, but it's really... In both their cases, they're staying very centrist. Mm -hmm. They're just trying to explain more, mm -hmm. which is, again, it's a kind of an older model of news, much the, the news magazine style that seems to, in the past two to three years, have come back in vogue for people because people say, okay, there's too much information out there. I'm feeling overloaded. Somebody explain this to me. Mm -hmm. So we've seen Newsy come out. We've seen a couple other apps come out mm -hmm. that promoting themselves, honestly, as slow news. Right. Or Vox. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. Um, where they're trying to say, okay, this is a longer story. Let us give you the details. Hmm. I don't expect people to, to do that on every issue, but if it's an issue you care about and you might vote on, maybe that's how you get your information. Final question. Do you, what do you think the trends are? Are you hopeful? Are you fearful? Uh, what, is, what, what should we expect in the future in terms of the media landscape and how we use it? I'm hopeful and I'm fearful. <laughs> very good um so for example weird anomaly of the citizens united decision mm -hmm. most people don't like it mm -hmm. right it's too much money in politics a lot of that money has gone to local news because of all those ads that are, you see especially those of you living in swing states <laughs> um yeah. they've actually gotten local news has gotten more money so they've been able to expand some of their consumer reports divisions the Washington Post and the New York Times after the 2016 election showed record subscription growth, I think partly because people realized that people were concerned about people throwing around the idea of fake news. The best thing anybody can do, I always tell people, is get a subscription to your local paper, even digital only. You don't, you don't have to ever use it, but that $2.99 a week really makes a difference. Uh, I do think of news as a public good. I do think that having lived in places without a free and independent press, I don't want to see us be without a free and independent press. The press is still free, but it can't really, the press is currently free in theory, but it's not really independent if it can't do the work it needs to do. So it can only serve us if, we were, if we're willing to play along, if we're willing to participate. Yeah, if you're willing to Think of it like your water bill or your electricity bill. You still pay an electricity bill when you're on vacation. You might pay less because you use less, but there's, the lines are still there. And you know when you come home, if you flip on the switch, you're, there's probably going to be light. Same thing with the news. Maybe you don't need it every day. But wouldn't you still like to be able to flip on the switch and see that it's there a few months later, particularly if you think something really wrong is happening? Again, I think if you people just treat it like that, you know, if I don't use water when I'm on vacation, I don't need the water, but I still want it there when I come back. Well, that's a that is a <laughs> a, a a practical and uh, and, a, and a hopeful note on which to end this conversation. So I hope uh, I hope our listeners found this both uh, it, it found this informative, and we look forward to uh, 
to hearing what they have to say about what they've heard. Uh, thank you, Dr. Amanda Cronkite, for joining us here today. And thank you to everyone who's been listening to this episode of A Better Peace. Uh, as ever, please let us know what you think. If you have ideas about the programs you've heard or about programs that you would like to hear, please get in touch with us. Uh, but until next time, for the U.S. Army War College uh, and the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. Thanks for joining us. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.com. Dot armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.